Well, I hope you have your uh, outlines that were in the booklet that uh, was on the table out there. We're looking at the theme of the sufficiency of God for an adequate people. And uh, last night we considered uh, the God of the despised, Ehud, the man who in some way uh, didn't have the use of his right hand and who was the bringer of tribute. And today we look at the God of the weak. Chapter 4, verse 1, after Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord, after Ehud died. And we're immediately reminded of the significance of leadership. Um, that's spelled out a great deal in the book of Judges. If you just cast your eye back to chapter 2 uh, and verse 19, chapter 2 kind of gives a survey in advance of what was going to happen and describes how the Lord was going to raise up judges when the people called out. But it says in verse 19, But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers. He's saying that this was a, a pattern, an observation of what happened. And indeed, it happens here. While Ehud lives, uh, this man had an effect on the whole nation. When he died, they turned back to other gods. Uh, chapter 8, verse 33, the same thing happens after Gideon. We read there that no sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. Uh, God's people in both the Old Testament and the New Testament are likened to sheep. Uh, and I take it that wasn't only true of the people of Israel back then, but it's true of the people of God now. It's true of us. Uh, we actually need shepherds. We need the good shepherd. We need his under shepherds because we easily go astray. And it isn't just somebody else. Isaiah 53, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. That's our natural mode without a godly shepherd. Now, chapter 4 is in the tragic cycle that the book of Judges presents before us again and again and again. The Lord raised up a deliverer. But then after the death of the deliverer, the people of Israel reverted to their evil ways, a pattern of rebellion bringing further judgment. And yet, I think chapters 4 and 5 um, tell a story that's essentially positive. You see, I think it is a short history of salvation. The uh, details are ancient, but the experience isn't. You see, where are you at the beginning of chapter 4? You're with a people cruelly oppressed, verse 3. And where are you at the end of the story? Just look at the end of chapter 5, the final comment. Then the land had peace or rest for 40 years. So it is a journey from oppression to rest. That is a microcosm of the story of salvation. As believers, that is our story. We start in a mess and we end up in rest. That's what God is doing. We have a taste of that rest. Indeed, we have the assurance of it. We have the Spirit of God. We have rest in Christ, but we're awaiting the great rest, aren't we? We're awaiting the glory that's to come. You haven't yet begun to see the fullness of what God will bring about in the rest that awaits us. But our journey is essentially the same, from oppression to rest. So let's look at three steps in the story of salvation. 
Firstly, there is the mass, chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. The Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we've already seen that as a refrain. Verse 7 of chapter 3, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 12, once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1, once again, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The, the refrain. And here, the Lord then sold them into the hands of Jabin, now, will you notice this, a king of Canaan. Now, in the context of uh, the Pentateuch and the context of Judges, that is a very poignant statement. You see, uh, God commanded the Israelites uh, to enter Canaan, and they went to the promised land. Uh, but God had a kind of another purpose bound up in that, because they were God's agents of judgment on the Canaanites. We can't escape this issue. Uh, for some people, it's a, it's a very big issue in their minds as they grapple with how such a thing could ever have been commanded by God. But there is no question that it was. Uh, and you can trace it right back. I mentioned the Pentateuch because you can trace this theme right back to Genesis. Uh, let me read it to you. Genesis 15, 16. God is describing to Abraham what will happen to his descendants, how they will be 400 years in Egypt. It doesn't say it's Egypt, but we know it's Egypt, the land where they're going to be slaves. And then they'll come out eventually. And in the fourth generation, this is verse 16 of Genesis 15, your descendants will come back here. That's to the land of Canaan. And then it adds, for the sin of the Amorites, that's a general title for the inhabitants of Canaan, for the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So the clock began to tick back in Genesis. There was a kind of countdown of mounting evil that was going on in the land of Canaan. Uh, God's wrath came on the Canaanites, not fortuitously, not outrageously, but justly because of their wickedness. And they were notorious for their evil practices. In Leviticus 18, there is a list of all the sexual sins that Israel was to stay away from and have nothing to do. And at the end, it says, uh, this is how the inhabitants of Canaan lived. And you're not to become like them. Deuteronomy 18 lists a whole list of occult practices, mediums, witches, sorcery, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and it says you're not to have anything to do with them. And at the end, it says, this is how the Canaanites lived. Uh, they were to stay away from the sexual sins. They were to stay away from the occult practices. And in both chapters, they mention child sacrifice. That was typical uh, of the Canaanites. So God declared a sentence of judgment on the Canaanites. God ultimately is going to judge all human beings, but sometimes he brings his judgment in a particular way into the present time. And that was true uh, of, of these people, the Canaanites. And the sentence of judgment is spelled out, so you really can't miss it. Uh, for example, in Exodus 23, 31 to 33, and in detail in Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 to 18, and those are just two of a whole number of such references. Deuteronomy 20 is interesting because there is a description, it's in the law, description of how Israel should conduct war 
When they came to besiege a city, they should always offer terms of peace rather than just attack it. And uh, there are regulations on how they should behave. Verse 16 of 20 says, However, in the cities of the nations the, Lord, the nations the Lord your God is giving you, that is the Canaanites, giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. That was an exception from the general conduct that Israel was commanded to. Completely destroy them. Uh, the, the Can uh, com completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hittites, and Jebusites. As the Lord your God has commanded you, otherwise they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshipping their gods, the, the cult prostitution, the occult practices, child sacrifice, and so on. And you will sin against the Lord your God, and you'll end up like Canaanites. A and that exactly is what the book of Judges is about. Because the Israelites did not completely follow God's commands. And by the end of the book of Judges, in a section that nobody preaches on, that's not quite true, but not very often, which we're not going to get to even uh, to, uh, in our little series because it's, uh, well, there's too much to cover. But you see the Israelites becoming just like the Canaanites. So these people were given over to a specific judgment. It wasn't because the Israelites were cruel and vengeful it was because God was just and judging and God has the right to do that I mean our problem with the issue is that we don't really want God to be God we want God to be like what we want him like we don't want him to be holy we don't want him to be that holy we don't want him destroying and judging people especially us but he does and at times in human history God brings his judgment as it were in advance you remember Sodom and Gomorrah became so particularly evil that God destroyed them and so it was with the Canaanites and you need to remember the words of Abraham in Genesis 18:25. will not the judge of all the earth do right yes indeed he will but when the Israelites came into the promised land, the book of Judges explains how they began well enough, but they actually began to compromise. And one compromise led to another compromise. And it multiplied. Now, we haven't started in Judges 1 like we really ought to have done, but in Judges 1, there's a whole account of how they began well and ended up in a mess. Uh, and in that chapter, they'd been told, you see, to destroy them and to have nothing to do with them, and not to intermarry with them, and not to worship their gods, but to break down and destroy their, idol, their idols and burn their Asherah poles. And they did exactly the opposite. So eight times over in chapter 1, in between verse 21 and 35, there is a refrain, they did not drive them out. They were commanded to drive them out. And they did not drive them out. And they did not drive them out. And they did not drive them out. And when they got to the next lot, they didn't drive that lot out either. Instead, they lived among them or they lived with them. And that comes five times. You'd have to take it from me, but you can check it out if you like. Chapter one. They lived among them. They were meant to destroy them, but they lived among them. They lived with them. Their neighbors next door were Canaanites. The, the idols of the Canaanites were just outside their houses. And guess what? They ended up worshipping with them. And four times it says they, they put them to forced labor. They found something else to do other than destroy them. They kind of found a substitute 
to obedience. They, and they cut the corners on what God had commanded. And, and that's why the book of Judges is, is a tragic book, because of the evil they kept getting into. So the point at the beginning of chapter 4 is this, that it's particularly poignant, you see, that this chapter records uh, the Canaanites' oppression of the Israelites. You see, they were meant to make to destroy the Canaanites, and instead the Canaanites were destroying them. It was a conquest in reverse. And Satan is always out to reverse the advances of God's kingdom. He wants to reverse God's advance in, in your life. He wants to reverse holiness in your life. He wants to re reverse uh, your dedication to the Lord. He wants to reverse your desire to serve him. He wants to reverse your, your desire to be with God's people and to listen to God's word. And praise God for every advance of the spirit of Christ in you. But you know this, Satan's going to contest that territory. And some of you will be sitting here and very aware that in some specific area in your life, Satan is trying to take back the territory that God has given you. Well, that was how it was in Israel. And they were in an abject state because of the judgment of God. God handed them over to the Canaanites. And uh, look, uh, he had a commander. And the king, Jabin, sort of is kind of more in the background. And, and the man who's big center stage is this man, Sisera. And he lived in an unpronounceable place called Harasheth Hagoim. That's my effort. Uh, and the thing about him was that he was the commander of the largest uh, chariot force on earth 900 chariots now I don't actually know that there wasn't any larger force on earth but I suspect there wasn't because 900 chariots I mean that is a colossal number of chariots and you've got to understand that chariots were the latest technology they were the cruise missiles that they were the most advanced possible form of military hardware and they didn't just have a few of them they had 900 of them. Uh, so that is an absolutely colossal uh, army. Uh, and uh, in chapter 4, the chariots get six references. You know, if you're an Israelite, you trembled because of their chariots. Uh, and what was the Israelites' uh, army like? Well, chapter 5, verse 8, incidentally, the chapter 4 is a narrative, as you've observed. Chapter 5 is poetry, as you probably have said, it's a song. But the two stories go together. The, the stories are told in two ways. So chapter 5 casts a lot of light on chapter 4. And in chapter 5, verse 8, we read that not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. So here were 900 chariots and the Israelites, 40,000 of them, and not one of them had a sword or a spear. They were that denuded uh, of weapons. So they are abjectly weak and they're in terrible decay. Chapter 5, verse 6 speaks of the roads being abandoned and village life in Israel ceasing. And there are hints in chapter 5 particularly of the sort of things the Canaanites did. So in chapter 5, verse 30, uh, in Sisera's household, as the women are kind of discussing where Sisera is, they, they don't realize he's dead, but they're imagining what he might be up to. Aren't they finding and dividing the spoils? And it says, a girl or two for each man. The Hebrew is a bit more direct, a womb or two. The women were raped, the goods were seized, the plunder was taken, and for 20 years, verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3, the Israelites were oppressed by the Canaanites. And Satan is oppressive. 
and is trying to oppress us in, in our society uh, by the, the loss of moral compass and values, by the breakdown of family, by the love of money, by the fear of terror. And the church is buffeted in the midst of all this pluralism and materialism and immorality around us. Uh, and, and we are affected by it. And salvation isn't just a theoretical need. You know, I have a car and I'm a member of the AA. And when it breaks down, I, I ring the AA and they come to rescue me. In the old days, I had a, 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 a very old car and I, I was a regular friend of the AA. Uh, but actually now I have a car which I can't remember when it broke down. Uh, and so I don't, you see, it's a kind of, if I did break down, I'd call the AA. But that's not the situation in terms of salvation. It isn't something that might happen that we're in a mess. We are in a mess. We need salvation. That is our present need. Because of the sort of thing we're seeing in judges, that is the sort of thing we see in our world too, which is that sin grips hold of you. Sin comes to take hold of you and come back again and again and again and again. And the Bible warns us of the wrath of God on us because of our sin and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We too are in a mess. It looks a little different. The names are a little different. We haven't seen a chariot for a long time, but we're in a mess. Secondly, there's the cry, verse 3. You see, um, because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now, everything hinges on the end of verse 3. The whole story of chapter 4 and ver uh, chapter 5, actually the hinge of it is verse 3, right at the beginning. They prayed. They prayed. What's the most important thing you've ever done? The most important thing you've ever done is pray. What's the most important thing churches can do? The most important thing churches can do is to pray. And this here wasn't just a few individuals. It says the Israelites cried to the Lord for help. There is more power in prayer than we can ever imagine. More power in prayer than in nuclear fission. Now, I've never met a Christian who looks me in the eye and says, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't believe in prayer. You know, Christians wouldn't say that, would they? But in fact, so many of them don't, not really. So they, they, they theoretically believe in prayer, but in practice they don't pray very much. Um, and, you know, even in evangelical churches, churches, the evidence is that churches pray less and less and less, and Satan is strangling us at the point of prayer. And it's the prayer here that made all the difference. Whatever else you do, pray. And third thing, so there's the mess, the cry, and then there's the power. You see, there's a story of deliverance, which is what chapter 4 and 5 is about. And there is one key player. Chapter 4, verse 6, uh, Deborah says, the Lord says through Deborah, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you. I will lure Caesarea with his chariots and his troops. I will give him into your hands. It's, it's the Lord who will lure. It is the Lord who will give him into your hands. Verse 9, the Lord will hand Caesarea over to a woman. Verse 14, this is the day the Lord has given Caesarea into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Verse 15, the Lord routed Caesarea and all his chariots and army by the sword. It's not Barak who routed 
the, the Canaanites, it was the Lord. So look at the final comment in the end of chapter 4. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites. So seven times in the chapter, God is named as the mover. He's the one who does it. Salvation is of the Lord. And chapter 5, when they sing about it, the name of the Lord and the name of God fills the whole song. Uh, look, verse 3, I will sing to the Lord, I will sing, I will make music to the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 4, O Lord, when you went out, uh, the earth shook, the heavens poured down water. Verse 5, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. And 12 times in 13 verses, it's God's name. So when they re reflect on the victory, it's God they keep talking about. They don't talk about the wonderful uh, leader. They talk about the wonderful God. Now, chapter 5 also vigorously celebrates the fact that God's people responded. So verse 2 talks about people willingly offering themselves. Verse 9 uh, my heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Verse 14 uh, describes some coming from Ephraim, some from Benjamin, from Machir, from Zebulun, from Issachar. And it celebrates the response of God's people. But the Lord is at the heart of the story. And that's true of salvation, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Try this, Romans 8. Those God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And salvation is expressed in the terms of verbs in which God is the subject of every verb. So my salvation is not about me. My salvation is not about what I, d I did. Yes, I, I, I heard the gospel. Yes, I, I repented. Yes, I believed. But it was God who worked all that, who moved my heart, who sent the Savior, who opened my eyes, who worked by his spirit, who brought me to put my faith in the Lord Jesus. And I discover uh, that, in fact, he chose me before the world began. Uh, that is what God is doing. God is the worker of salvation. So we say, don't we hear? Don't we obey? Don't we work out our salvation? Didn't Deborah, Barak, the army of Israel, Jael have something to do with Israel's salvation? Yes, yes, but it's the Lord who did it all the way through. And that's how it always is. So in Revelation 7, when there is this incredible company praising in a voice, incredibly, uh, incredible volume, uh, the, the heavenly host is singing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So salvation happens all the way through the Bible because of the Lord. So they cross the Red Sea because of the Lord. And the walls of Jericho fall because of the Lord. And Gideon with 300 men wins an amazing victory because of the Lord. And on Mount Carmel, Elijah prays and God sends the fire. It's because of the Lord. And at Calvary, God worked salvation for all who trust ever in Christ. And it's his work, not ours. And we respond to what he is doing because his work is going on in our lives. But you know what that means? That means there's always hope. That means that whenever you cry out to such a God, there is always hope. At some time in your life, Satan will climb on your back. And Satan will whisper in your ear, 
that this is beyond hope, that you are beyond hope, that your family is beyond hope, that your marriage is beyond hope, that you are beyond hope, that your church is beyond hope, that, that life is ebbing away and there is no hope. And it's a lie. Because when you're dealing with this God, there is always hope. Because he is the agent of salvation and not me. A short history of salvation. Got it? God does it. Then the weak agents that God uses. Because having made that point, we then see that God uses people. Now, God's not obliged to. And God doesn't have to use people. How many people are involved in creating the world? <laughs> None of us. Uh, God doesn't have to use people, but God does use people. That is his general way of operating. If we went round the room and said how we each became Christians, I, I would imagine that all of you would mention people. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's the youth uh, leader or maybe it's your a friend or, or maybe it's a pastor or, or maybe a whole series of people that God has probably used in your life uh, and it's striking here what is particularly striking is God used such unlikely people now I wonder if you're a, a special Christian now, I don't imagine you tell me that but um, you know we can think sometimes we're pretty special you know, pretty well sorted. We got a good background. Come from a good Christian home, good Christian church. Led in the Christian union. Or whatever it is you've done. And, and, and you know, the truth is that uh, when you know your own heart, you realize that, uh, that you're not a very special Christian. And is your church a special church? Well, I, I hope that you actually think, yeah, it's a wonderful place to be. But, you know... Churches are generally more impressive from a distance. And when you get really close up, you find some of the things that are going on in churches. Uh, is your church bursting with people eager, queuing up to change the world and wonderful families with godly children and older people overflowing with zeal and prayer meetings so packed out you have to get there early to, to be able to get in? Uh, or are there quite a lot of struggles and disappointments in the midst of all the things that are encouraging? And, you know, since actually we're all ordinary Christians, this is very encouraging, Judges 4 and 5, because God uses ordinary people. And you see, God has three agents here, and they're all ordinary. And when I say they're ordinary, they were used in extraordinary ways, but they're all a surprise. So, firstly, trust God's word. Let's meet Deborah. Deborah is a surprise. Look in verse 4. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She is a prophetess in Israel. Now, they're, they're pretty rare. The only ones we know by name are, are Miriam, Moses' sister, Huldah, and Deborah. Uh, there's Anna in the, in the New Testament, but they're few and far between. And... Many people have suggested, and probably there's truth in it, that the fact that this lady was leading in her time says a lot about her qualities and perhaps something about the qualities of the men around her as well. Verse 5, she held court under a tree that bore, bears her name, the tree, uh, the palm tree of, uh, uh, a palm of Deborah, uh, up in the hill country of Ephraim. 
And the centre of Canaanite power, Caesarea and company, are, are further north, a bit west of the, of the Sea of Galilee. They're up north, and she's operating in the centre. Um, and she was in her, the lovely phrase in chapter 5, verse 7, a mother in Israel. The Israelites are like squabbling children, and she takes them in hand. And she plays a key part. But it, it's a very kind of, it's an interesting part. When the rest of the Bible refers back to the events of Judges 4 and 5, they refer to Deborah, and they, sorry, they refer to Barak, not Deborah. You can check that out in 1 Samuel 12 or Hebrews 11. Um, she doesn't try to be Joan of Arc. She doesn't put a suit of armor on. She doesn't take the sword in her hand. She doesn't lead Israel into her battle. What is her role? Her role is, well, she's a prophetess. She declares God's word to Barak. So verse 6, she sent for Barak. And Barak lived way north. And he, he comes all the way down. And, and she says to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go and take. And then she speaks not her words, but God's word. Verse 7, I will lure Caesarea. I will give him into your hands. Th this is not her words. This is the Lord's word. Again, verse 14. Go, this is the day the Lord has given Caesarea into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? She is full of confidence in the Lord, and she got others to take God's word seriously. Um, none of us are bringing fresh verbal revelation like she was. But we have a word of God. And the heart of doing what God wants you to do and being what God wants you to be is that you too are full of confidence in the Lord and his word and the effect you have on others is to get others to take God's word seriously. She gets Barak to trust God and as a result, thousands of people follow Barak and victory is won. Now, as I say, we are not bringing fresh verbal revelation, but we are commanded. He, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ, and it's not talking just about the people at the front, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. So as you let the word of Christ dwell in you, you are in a position to be able to encourage others with that word and encourage them to take it seriously. That's what Jesus did. You remember the wonderful story on the road to Emmaus where we're so familiar with it that we're not surprised as we ought to be because Jesus has risen. And here are these two disciples going on that walk, a couple of hours, and they're in total disarray in their own hearts. They're completely shattered and, and, and disillusioned and distressed because the unthinkable has happened and Jesus is dead. And Jesus walks with them. What's he going to do? Well, you all know what he's going to do. He's going to say, I'm alive. I'm risen. Isn't that the whole message of the, re of, of the resurrection? And wasn't that what they needed to hear? Apparently not. Apparently not. Jesus took two hours to give them a Bible study. And he took them through the whole of the Bible, the Old Testament, displaying to them what the scriptures had always said, so that when they later reflected and spoke to others, they didn't just say, I had a special experience. How nice for you. No, they knew that this is what God's word had always promised and this is what God did according to his word and Christ is indeed risen as the scriptures had said. That's a different message. 
because those scriptures I have and those scriptures speak to me of truth and this resurrection of Jesus is one of the proofs of the reliability and integrity of God's word and that's what we should be like too. encourage others in confidence you see we had Genesis 3 read to us see what's Genesis 3 about it is the root of all evil in our world and therefore it's very instructive what does Satan do when he turns up and talks to Eve the thing he does is to attack God's word did God really say and he distorts God's word God's word and says something God never said you're not to eat from any tree in the garden uh, and immediately from the kickoff Satan's business is to destroy your confidence in God's word and so what is the business of the spirit of God the business of the spirit of God is to restore your confidence in God's word so we need to be Deborahs who encourage each other to trust and obey the word of God. Have you heard of Alec Matir? Alec Matir, does that name mean anything? He's a great Old Testament scholar. He's quite elderly now. He's written some wonderful commentaries. Okay. Uh, Alec Matir is actually Irish, and he, 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 when he was a, a, a kid, uh, at about the age of uh, five or six, he was sent to stay with Granny for two weeks, which became seven or eight years. And his Granny loved the Lord. And his granny taught him the Bible. So his granny was key in his life, teaching him to trust the word of God. Years later, he went to theological college. And his teachers were teaching him that the Bible is not what it seems. And that these, you know, there's J-E-D-P knocking about in the, in the Pentateuch. And it wasn't really, you know, it was kind of the product of all these various editors. And, you know, there are three Isaiahs. You don't really believe in one, do you? And all this sort of stuff. And they tore the Bible apart systematically. And for, for Alec, as this young, keen theological student, the issue came down to this. Did he trust his lecturers or did he trust his granny? And he looked at his granny's life and he looked at his lecturer's life and he chose to trust granny because granny had taught him that the Bible could be trusted and came from God. And granny's life stood scrutiny and he knew the integrity of his granny and nobody has ever heard of Alec Matias granny but actually the blessing that God has brought to thousands of people through Alec Matia in some ways can be attributed under to God to one elderly lady who taught her grandson to trust the Bible trust God's word secondly obey anyway obey anyway after 20 years of uh, Jabin and Sisera, the Israelites were cowed and intimidated, and Barak is summoned to Deborah, and Deborah declares to him God's call on his life. Yeah, you know, you are going to be the hero that I'm going to use. Well, he doesn't actually say that, does he? And look how he responds in verse 8. He says, if you go with me, I will go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. Now, does that sound like a heroic, you know, heroic response? Uh, well, no, it wasn't a heroic response. Uh, here is this guy who's meant to be the leader of the armies of the Lord, and he's not going to go unless Deborah goes with him. Um, and Deborah says, very well, I will go with you. But now there's an ambiguous phrase. It says, because of the way, in my translation, because of the way you're going about this, the honor will not be yours, 
for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. Uh, it's a bit ambiguous. Tim Keller thinks that Deborah's just making a prophetic statement, which makes it all the more remarkable that Barak went knowing the glory would go to a woman. But most commentators, and it seems to me, for what that's worth, uh, that it seems to me that Barak has qualified his, his obedience with this condition. I'm not going to go if you don't go. And Deborah's answer has a very strong negative. I will go with you, but, that's what the NIV says, but literally accept that not. Uh, there's a very strong adversity. You see, and, and, and her, her, what she says is a response to his qualification, his qualified obedience. Have you ever obeyed in a qualified way? You know, I'll do it as long as. Uh, it doesn't sound like a hero. Uh, and I don't think Barak in, instinctively was a hero. Um, what is a true hero, though? Is a true hero somebody who never considers danger, who can't anticipate failure, who never thinks twice? Perhaps a true hero is the man who would, by nature, run a mile, but doesn't. The person who trembles to think of talking about his faith to somebody else, but actually does it all the same. See, Barak was not a natural hero, but he's there in Hebrews 11, verse 32, as among the heroes of faith. And we need to understand what he did. He was told to take 10,000 men up on Mount Tabor in verse 6, up the mountain. That was a good place to go if you're an Israelite in those days. Because on the steep slopes, nobody's going to take a chariot up a mountain. Okay. But the chariots were brilliant down in the valleys. But do you see what God said in verse 7? God said, I will lure Caesarea, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and troops to the Kishon River. That's in a valley. That's where rivers are, you know. They're not on hills. They're in valleys. So he is saying, down in the valley, that's where you're going to win the battle. But that didn't make any sense, really, because it was down in the valley, which was nice and flat. It was down in the valley where the chariots did their worst. That was precisely where anybody who was a chariot commander wanted to fight the battle. So up in the mountains, the Israelites could collect however many thousands, didn't matter, 10,000, verse 14, but they weren't doing any danger, they weren't in any danger, and they weren't able to, afflict, to inflict any damage on the Canaanites up on the mountain. It was down in the valley that it was dangerous. So it made no sense at one level for them to come down. But you see what happens. Look in verse 14. This is Barak's great moment. You see, at the end of 14... Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. And they went down to where the chariots would have all the advantages. And it wasn't a calculation of obvious advantage. It was a calculation of obedience. And at some point in your life, and maybe many times in your life, you will face question, an issue where you have to make a choice between a calculation of advantage and a calculation of obedience that actually you can see all the advantages of not doing what God says, but you have to reckon on whether you're going to obey him anyway. That's the judgment Barak had to make. That's the judgment Potter, um, Joseph made when Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce him. He had to make the choice between a calculation of an obvious advantage. She was trying to seduce him. He was, she was the boss's wife. Uh, it would be easier if he gave in. Or a calculation of obedience when he ran and he ends up in prison for two years. 
That's a calculation of obedience, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. When they refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's huge image, they say if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hands, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up over and out. You see, they, they're, they're, this isn't a calculation of obvious advantage. This is a calculation of obedience. And those who give their lives for Christ make a calculation of obedience. It doesn't look like a calculation of advantage. That's what the apostles did when they were commanded not to teach in Jesus' name. We've got to obey God rather than man. Uh, and you have to make, as a believer, calculations of obedience, not of advantage. I'm going to keep my marriage vows. I'm going to tell the truth. It's a spirit that God loves to honor, the calculation of obedience. What actually happened? Well, it, it's actually chapter 5 that gives you much more indications of what happened. You see, as he came down the valley, something remarkable happened. You've got to understand, the river Kishon, river is a slightly uh, optimistic word. Most of the year, it was a complete dry riverbed. Uh, it, it wasn't a river most of the year. It only became a river when there were enough rains or a storm. So actually, to begin with, it was, that day it was probably no water there at all. However, something happened. Chapter 5, verse 4 talks about God and the earth shaking and the heavens pouring and the clouds pouring down water. Verse 21, the river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon, it, in a, in, one, in a miracle of God's timing, it seems that as though as Barak came down the mountain, the storm began and the heavens opened and the wind perhaps blew like it's been blowing around here all night. And the river Kishon, instead of being a dry riverbed, became a raging torrent and a flooded valley. And as the chariots come along the valley, instead of becoming, being a mobile strike force, they became death traps because their wheels got stuck in the mud and the water and the debris and the rocks. And the lightly armored Israelite soldiers just ran around slaughtering Canaanites and they were stuck in their chariots. And what should have been their great agency agent of victory that the chariot became death traps where they were slaughtered. And the irony is that Baal, the god they worshipped, the Baals were meant to be storm gods. They were meant to be weather gods. That's why they worship the bars. That's why they sacrifice their children to make the heavens open with rain and the things to grow. But on this occasion, it wasn't Baal who opened the heavens, but God. And verse 16, all the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. And all because one anxious man obeyed God anyway. Now, you are not Barak, but you have the same issue. Will you obey God anyway? Will you keep yourself sexually pure anyway? Will you go and worship with others and be throw yourself into the life of a church anyway? When there are so many other things you could do and so many other people who don't, will you obey God anyway? Those are people God honors. And finally, even you, meet Jael. Now, Jael is the most uh, surprising of all. She's the wife of Heber the Kenite, 
and she has had a mega bad press. I mean a bad press from uh, the evangelical scholars, not all of them, but for many of them. So let me quote some of the things that are said about this lady. Uh, a betrayer, vicious, unscrupulous, ferocious, callous, and treacherous. You know, the commentator really didn't like her. Uh, Keller says, Jail's method is a clear violation of two of the Ten Commandments. She lies and she kills. But Jail also broke all the very strong policies and rules of Middle Eastern hospitality. It was treachery by the standards of any culture. And by the time you've read some of the commentators, you feel Jail really ought to be apologizing for killing Caesarea. Uh, and, and I think that in the book of Judges, as elsewhere, there's a danger we don't listen to the text. And there's a danger that we simply impose on the text some 21st century mindset. So let's try to get ourselves into her mind and her world. The first thing you need to understand about her is she is in a compromised situation. Her husband is Heber the Kenite. He is introduced suddenly in the story in verse 11. Uh, the Kenites were not Israelites. They were descendants of Moses' in-laws. But they added themselves to Israel. And they became integrated in, in Israel. And if you read Joshua, you'll find the Kenites were given land in the south of Judah. But verse 11 says, Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zanaim near Kedesh. Now, what that, the word left is literally severed, separated, divided, abandoned. He had abandoned the land of his inheritance. And if you know anything about Old Testament law, the Old Testament law was very strong that the land which a family had been given under God in the promised land was land they were to literally cling to. That was what Naboth was doing when Ahab went after him, if you remember. And he refused to give his land because it was the land the law told him to cling to. Uh, but this man hasn't clung to the land. He's abandoned the land. He's abandoned his families. And he's gone up to, well, where's he gone up to? Well, this place, the great tree in Zanaim near Kedesh, is way north. It's near the Sea of Galilee. And it is exactly the area which the Canaanites were most dominant in. And it's not altogether a surprise in verse 17 that you read that there was peace or friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Heber the Kenite. Uh, so he has abandoned the people of God and he is allied with the enemies of God. He is the spiritual ancestor of Judas. And Jael is his wife. She's bound up through a husband with the enemies of God. Um, and, you know, there are people who are in situations where they feel so compromised. They feel as though they can't really serve God. Their husband or their wife is not a believer. Their children have rejected the faith. Things have happened in their lives. They're single parents. They're divorced. And they feel beyond use. She, she's in a compromised situation, and she has such limited capacity. You see, jail had no impact on her husband's decisions. Politics, alliances, war, well, that was nothing to do with her. She didn't make the decisions that even mattered in her own home. She had a sphere, and her sphere was the tent. You see, chapter 5, verse 24, she was a tent-dwelling woman. So the area of her competence was, what was it? Cooking, washing. Um, children, hospitality, and, oh yes, she was a dab hand with a mallet and a tent peg because erecting tents was a woman's job, but what possible good could that do in God's purposes? 
Now, I wonder if you feel like that. That others are gifted, but you're not. Others count, but you don't. And the area of your competence is so small. And you're sitting, you may come to conferences, but you sit there and you say, uh, I am in irrelevance. How could God use me? Can God use me? And jail has an answer. And the answer is yes, even incidentally if it looks a bit different from the way God used jail. Because you see, this woman in a compromised situation with such limited capacity, the Lord handed over the enemy commander to this woman. It's no chance arrival. Verse 17, Caesarea fled on foot. He's a bit canny. He gets totally, his, his forces are destroyed in the battle. And Barak goes after them back to Harashoth Hagoyim, their, their headquarters. And actually, when Jael gets out of his, it's what not, when um, Caesarea gets out of his chariot, he goes in the opposite direction. So Barak is going, you know, hurtling in the other direction. And, 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 and uh, Caesarea is going unnoticed in the opposite direction. And he ends up at the tent uh, of Jael. As I say, that is no accident, because if you look back, um, that is precisely what God had planned, as we find in verse 9. The Lord will hand Caesarea over to a woman. So she arrives uh, at, this, uh, at the encampment uh, expecting shelter because the, the Kenites are his allies up there. And we've got to understand Caesarea is an evil man. He has been the cruel oppressor of Israel for decades. He is used to rape and pillage and terror. And here's a Canaanite under a particular sentence of judgment. Deuteronomy 7, 2, I didn't quote earlier. When the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must destroy them. You must devote them to complete destruction. This man was a prince of darkness. And Jael's action is attributed to God's plan, verse 4, 9, and celebrated Chapter 5, verse 24. Just look at 5.24. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Most blessed of tent-dwelling women. Most blessed twice over. And then you get the most extraordinary slow-motion description of what happens. I mean, just have a look at it. Verse 6. A hand reached for the tent peg. She's given him this wonderful drink. He goes to sleep in her tent. Her hand reached for the tent peg. Her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Caesarea. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet, he sank. He fell. There he lay. At her feet, he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. You get the picture? This, you know, you're not meant to read that and think, oh, how awful. You're meant to read that and say, Hallelujah. Fantastic. It indisputably savors the moment. And the force of the text must lead us to conclude that God honors this woman. And apparently the very weakest person in the whole story becomes the very agent God used. Can that happen today? Or something like that? In Bath, there is an old style brethren assembly. You know the sort where all the ladies wear hats and never open their mouths. Okay, it's the sort of church I don't think many of you, well, you might have been brought up in that, but I suspect many of you don't go to now. Okay, so it isn't the coming church in Bath, but they love the Lord. And this old lady 
used to go out and does, I might well still do it, she's quite elderly now, inviting people to church on Sunday with a little leaflet. And there was a Burmese student who came to study in Bath, and he was completely culture shocked. He met these very strange people who don't talk to people, you know, sit in buses and say nothing, sit on trains and don't talk to the people next to you, and they don't smile at you either. And he arrived in Bath, and, you know, he was just overwhelmed by all these strange people. Uh, and he walked around the town, and this old lady came up to him, and she smiled, and she gave him an invitation, and she talked to him, and his English wasn't very good, but he did understand this was a lady who smiled. And so he didn't have anything to do on the Sunday, so he went to church for the first time in his life, and he didn't understand anything except the children's talk. Because the children's talk was really nice and simple, which was about where his English was. Uh, and, uh, and, but they, they smiled at him, and they gave him coffee and tea and biscuits and invited him out to lunch. He wouldn't go back for that. So he went the next Sunday, and he went the next Sunday. And for the first months, the only thing he did understand was the children's talk. And he kept coming, and he kept coming, until eventually he understood a great deal more. And it, eventually the Spirit opened his heart, and he came to faith. And it all began with an old lady that none of us would think as the cutting edge evangelist who actually God used to bring one man on the journey to faith. Can God use you? Yep. Yep, God can use you. But one th other thing to see, the conclusion. Chapter 5, verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But may they who love you be like the sun. May all your enemies perish like Caesarea has. The Bible sees the destruction of Caesarea, this is in Dale Ralph Davis's terms, as a foretaste, a preview, a scale model of what the Lord will finally do when he conquers all our enemies. And if we take offense at a deliverance so physical and so messy, we need to remember we're in a physical world where sin is physical and messy. And the salvation we need is not just kind of airbrushed metaphysics, but something nitty-gritty down to earth that breaks up Satan's kingdom and agents, and where God's means of grace are as gruesome as a man lacerated and bleeding and nailed to a cross, dying in agony very slowly. And as when Goliath lay dead, his head chopped off by David. So when Caesarea lay dead with a tent peg through his head thanks to jail, I think there was a shiver down the devil's spine because they were just foretastes of a greater champion and a greater victory and a greater enemy. Uh, the day when God's great hero uh, trampled the serpent's head and finally will come in his glory to cast the devil and all his human agents and spiritual agents into the lake of burning sulfur, a real place for real beings and all God's enemies. And scripture rejoices in the judgments of God, not for their own sake, but understand this, because it's only where judgment is real that there can be a world where no evil is possible. Heaven is only possible because we have a God who will deal with evil.
And so here is encouragement for us all. God is at work to save. He's bringing us into salvation, out of the mess and into his rest. And he uses people and he doesn't wait until the church is made up of fantastic Christians. He stoops to use such ordinary and unlikely people. So God could use Deborah and Barak and Jael. And we need to know their story so that we may know that God can use us too. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we worship you that we have a God in heaven. There is a God who works salvation. We thank you, Lord, that your salvation will bring us out of this world of sin and temptation where evil so often reigns into the place of peace and rest that we already have a taste of into which we will one day fully come. And Lord, we thank you for your great champion, one much greater than Deborah or Barak or Jael. We thank you for our Lord Jesus who has trampled the serpent's head, who has destroyed him at Calvary, who has broken his grip and one day will cast him into the lake of fire. Lord, we thank you that you know how to deal with evil and you also know how to use weak and unworthy people. And we want to ask you, Lord, that you would use us where you've put us. In Jesus' name, amen.